0: You are listening to the Crisis Center's podcast. In each episode, we will be hearing from Crisis Center staff, community partners, and volunteers about issues our community faces. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. We use this time to support survivors with education, outreach, advocacy, and activism that fights stigma and works to change the culture that fosters sexual violence. One incredibly important part of that is understanding what exactly creates that culture. By looking at the different ways sexual assault happens and who it happens to, we can maybe better understand how to help those affected and make our community safer. In this episode, we'll explore once again what it means to be a vulnerable population when it comes to sexual assault. Warning, the topics explored in this episode may be triggering and or distressing for some listeners. Please use discretion when listening to this podcast. Our 24-hour rape response hotline is available if you need to talk. The number is 205-323-7273. So, first of all, what exactly do we mean when we say a vulnerable population?
1: When we say vulnerable population, we mean a group that requires greater protection than normal against sexual assault. A person is considered to be part of a vulnerable population when they are at higher
2: risk of sexual assault based on some characteristic. Anyone can be the victim of sexual violence, but there are certain groups who are more likely to be targeted by perpetrators. People in these populations tend to be targeted by perpetrators due to a physical or mental vulnerability, lack of access to resources, or tendency to be less believable than other people. Some people are considered vulnerable to sexual violence based on the high likelihood that they will experience violence as compared to the low reporting rate among the group.
0: The first group we'll look at
1: are the homeless. In any form of sexual assault, minority and marginalized women are most vulnerable. Women on the streets do not have the same level of safety provided to them as women housed under a roof, making them even more vulnerable to offenders. People experiencing homelessness may also be labeled as unworthy of protection because of their current social or economic status.
0: It's important to understand how a person becomes homeless. Homelessness is usually the result of an unfortunate combination of circumstances. First, there's the potential lack of access to adequate income or affordable housing. Homelessness and poverty are inextricably linked and those who experience poverty may have trouble paying for housing, food, child care, health care, and education. For a person experiencing poverty, it may only take one illness, one accident, or one missed paycheck to result in a loss of housing. There's a notable shortage of adequate, affordable, and stable housing. Millions of families and individuals live in circumstances where they spend more than 50% of their income just on housing costs. But studies show that even spending more than 30% of your household income on rent and mortgage can put you at risk for homelessness. Additionally, experiences of discrimination may inhibit someone's access to employment, housing, or resources that could prevent homelessness. Sometimes it's the system that fails someone and results in their homelessness. This could be difficult transitions from hospitalization, discharge from correctional, mental health, or addiction facilities. And then there's a lack of support for immigrants and refugees who may be seeking housing but are getting lost in the system. Personal circumstances such as traumatic events like a house fire or job loss, personal crises such as domestic violence or the breakup of a family, mental illness, physical disabilities, and substance abuse problems, which can be both a cause and a consequence of homelessness. Zuri works at the district attorney's office as a crisis center liaison. She provides legal advocacy to victims of sexual assault by walking them through the court process and referring them to needed resources. Here are some of the barriers that Zuri has witnessed for people who are housing insecure or homeless and getting help for sexual assault.
1: Well, the first thing I would say would be communication. A lot of people experiencing homelessness do not have the financial means to have access to a reliable phone number and or address. The other thing I would say would be transportation. Being able to come to the crisis center and or one place to get a scene done or just to inquire about resources. And then another thing in addition to those things I would say would be them not possibly having reliable internet service so they can't Google or use another web browser for resources for sexual assault. Domestic and family violence can force
0: individuals to leave home suddenly without proper supports in place. Women who experience violence and or live in poverty are often forced to choose between abusive relationships and homelessness. As well, seniors that are experiencing abuse and neglect are increasingly at risk of homelessness. And young people that are victims of sexual, physical, and psychological abuse often end up on the streets. According to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center's website, Studies show that the age at which youth leave home directly relates to sexual victimization on the streets. The younger a person is when they leave home, the more likely they are to be victimized. 44% of homeless youth are fearful of being sexually assaulted, molested, or raped on the streets. 24% of homeless youth report witnessing someone being sexually assaulted, 16% of which occurred on the streets. 70 percent of homeless youth report experiencing some form of violence, 32 percent of which includes sexual assault. In homeless adults, the lifetime risk for violent victimization for homeless women with mental illness is 97 percent, making sexual violence a normative experience for this population. According to a study of homeless and marginally housed people, 32% of women, 27% of men, and 38% of transgendered persons reported either physical or sexual victimization in the previous year. According to a study of homeless and marginally housed people, 32% of women, 27% of men, and 38% of transgendered persons reported either physical or sexual victimization in the previous year. This data describes a problem that's really difficult to deal with. But fortunately, there are ways that we can help this
1: population and make them feel safer. The first thing I think is important to do is to continue rejecting and eventually eliminating the stigma associated with homelessness. And it oftentimes comes from misconceptions. These stigmas can be like them being uneducated or them not willing to work, people just seeing them as worthless in general. These are things that society uses to reject helping people experiencing homelessness. We also need to keep in mind that those specific people are not living on the streets by choice. The stigma can often be a barrier for people experiencing homelessness getting the resources that they need. Another thing that we can do as a community would be actually engaging with the community of people experiencing homelessness. In doing so, we can provide information and resources since they might not be able to get to us because, you know, the transportation barrier that might be affecting some of them or all of them. We can do that by continuing to partner with organizations. That's mission is centered around helping people experiencing homelessness, Um, and always making sure that they know that we're here as a reliable and, more importantly, non-judgmental resource. The next group experiences sexual assault on a frequent
0: basis, but has one of the hardest times reporting. Some people choose to enter
2: into sex work, and some people are forced into it. And as such, some sex work is consensual and some is not. When working with people who do sex work, advocates may need to determine if the person is working because they want to or because they've been forced into it. There's a fine line, and it's often difficult because assuming that all sex workers are victims suggests helplessness or a lack of agency. But if advocates don't dive deep enough, we may miss signs of trauma or coercion. A person may consent to sex in exchange for money, but when a client doesn't respect the boundaries or the agreements made between them, this can be considered sexual violence. Perpetrators know that sex workers are less likely to report violence, and if they do, they're not likely to be taken seriously or receive justice. An assumption sexual assault advocates make is that if a person is seeking our services, they have been victimized in some way, but we must rely on the survivor to
0: be the author of their story. We can go back and look at the link, also, between sex work and homelessness. In a study of 325 women in prostitution, 50% reported a history of child sexual abuse. 45% were homeless. Most were staying at shelters, homes of other individuals or on the streets. In a study of 222 women engaged in prostitution, forced sex while in prostitution was commonly reported by women in escort businesses, women working out of drug houses, and those engaged in survival sex. Large percentages of women involved in prostitution were homeless. One in three teens will be recruited by a pimp within 48 hours of running away from home. The most common age of entry into commercial sex industry in the United States for girls is 12, and for boys is 13.
2: When sex workers are victims of crime, is often seen as inevitable. Like, what did they expect would happen? They aren't taken seriously when they report crimes and often fear getting into trouble for reporting a crime. They worry that anyone they tell will
0: blame them for the assault or shame them for engaging in sex work. Whether a person was forced into sex working industry or they chose this line of work for themselves, we have to carefully look at each individual to better understand the problem, the barriers that they face, and how we can better help each individual person. We can start by not being jerks about sex
2: work. Regardless of how we feel about sex work as a profession, People who engage in sex work are deserving of respect, compassion, and dignity. The decision to earn income through sex work is based on many personal factors, and advocates must remember that people have the right to exercise agency when making these decisions. They deserve an advocate who will help them without judgment and to be taken seriously when a crime is committed against them. You can visit NSWP.org to learn
0: more about sex worker rights. The third and final group we'll look at in today's episode is perhaps one of the most cast-aside, joked-about, and alienated groups we could discuss when it comes to sexual assault, but they're incredibly vulnerable, and they deserve our compassion. Talking about this group today is Jesse, who is the coordinator for our Prison Rape Elimination Act line at the
3: Crisis Center. Incarcerated individuals are considered a vulnerable population for a number of reasons. First, they live in unsafe and traumatic environments. In an article published in the New York Times in late April 2019, one journalist writes, On April 2nd, the Department of Justice issued a horrifying report on Alabama's prisons, with graphic accounts of prisoners who were tortured, burned, raped, sodomized, stabbed, and murdered in largely unsupervised dorms. In hundreds of reports of sexual abuse, for example, the investigators did not find a single instance of a guard intervening. Officers are so outnumbered, the report said, that they stay in a secure area rather than patrol. As well, Debbie Elliott of NPR reports, the U.S. Department of Justice determined the state routinely violates the constitutional rights of prisoners by failing to protect them from prisoner-on-prisoner violence and sexual abuse. We know that the rates of sexual violence are high in the prison population. While some studies show as high as 7% of incarcerated individuals who experience sexual assault, the Department of Justice reports that it's closer to 4% a year. Now this may not sound like a very large percent, but when you consider that Alabama prisons house anywhere from 28,000 to 30,000 individuals, then we are talking about approximately 1,200 individuals experiencing sexual assault a year. The second reason incarcerated individuals are considered vulnerable is because of the lack of access to resources and their lack of ability to distance themselves from their assailants. In 2017, federal judge Myron Thompson described mental health services for incarcerated individuals to be horrendously inadequate. As well, we know that sexual assault affects a person's perception of safety, and for incarcerated survivors, they are not able to escape their assailants. They are literally trapped inside of underfunded, understaffed spaces with their assailants. And in fact, sometimes these assailants might even be the people in charge of keeping them safe. In 2003, the Senate passed the Prison Rape Elimination Act, also known as PREA. PREA, born out of the focus on protecting Eighth Amendment rights, was designed to establish national standards related to the detection, prevention, reduction, and punishment of prison rape. Each state and incarceration facility that receives federal funding must comply to these standards. At the Crisis Center, we are trying to support our state as it meets these PREA standards. We do this by offering a 24-7, 365 hotline that incarcerated survivors can call and have an advocate to speak with. Our advocates have been trained on how to listen and support these individuals in terms of their mental health um, and in terms of sexual assault advocacy. As well as the Crisis Center, we offer evidence collection and in-person advocacy for incarcerated survivors, just like we would with survivors from the free world. Then kind of last but not least, uh, we also have a 12-module letter writing system. So if a survivor comes in and they have evidence collected, uh, what we do is start to send them letters. We check in and see how they're doing. Uh, We give them materials to write us letters back. Each module that we send to them is about a different experience related to surviving sexual assault. So this might be information about PTSD, it might be about how to handle anger, um, it might be about how to reestablish trust and about deepening relationships. Um, it's a variety of different things that we use to try and help a survivor process and cope even though they may not have access to mental health resources inside of their facility. We honestly hear quite a bit of anger and frustration on the pre line. Numerous incarcerated individuals call us to express their anger because they feel like no one cares about them. They feel unheard and undervalued. They express their fear about their physical environments And our advocates listen to so many different traumatic reactions from these individuals. Our in-person survivors that we work with we frequently hear them express their gratitude. Our protocol is to help them feel empowered and humanized. We know that incarceration can be so demoralizing and so our incredible advocates focus on treating the survivors with warmth and hospitality and the same warmth and hospitality that we would offer to anyone. We are really not doing anything unique in this situation. What we're trying to do is just help people feel like people again.
0: Priya has proven to be a great resource for incarcerated individuals who are experiencing sexual assault. But what else can we do?
3: One easy thing that comes to mind is that we can avoid the idea that someone deserves to be sexually assaulted. What I mean here is that sometimes when people are sent to prison, people will joke about the idea of sexual violence and even go as far as to believe that someone deserves this as a punishment. Being incarcerated is the punishment, not sexual violence. So the first thing that we can all do is move away from this idea that just because someone is incarcerated, that they deserve whatever terrible things that will happen to them in incarceration. The next thing would be that we, as a society, can begin focusing on prison reform. Our system desperately needs a reboot. And this is at a national level, this is at a state level, this is sort of uh, all over the place um we desperately need some prison reform so if this is something that you're passionate about that you're interested in it's something that you think that you want to get involved with obviously you can apply and volunteer with us here at the crisis center Um, but you can also check out a number of other organizations One organization that works both here in the United States and also in South Africa that's pretty incredible in terms of prison rape support is Just Detention International. If you're looking for something more local, definitely check out the Equal Justice Initiative or the Southern Poverty Law Center. And then even as close to like Birmingham here, there's places like the Dannon Project and the Offender Alumni Association. There are just group after group after group and all kinds of people all over the world who are really trying to create realistic and hopeful prison reform.
0: Each vulnerable population that we look at has their own unique set of barriers based on their life, their own individual selves. So the power of erasing stigma for each one of these groups helps destroy some of those barriers helps make it easier for somebody to come forward and report their sexual assault, get access to resources, and keep violent perpetrators off the streets. Perpetrators of sexual assault are opportunists, seeking power or authority and control over others. What all three of the groups that we've discussed today have in common, as well as all of the vulnerable populations that we've explored in this series, is that they are perceived as different or other by a group or individual who holds the majority of power within their environment. But this is only a perception. Each human life is uniquely valuable and deserves unconditional positive regard. Treating one another with dignity and respect is how we can work against dehumanizing others by recognizing the humanity in each person, which will create a culture of compassion and erode the culture of power that fosters sexual assault in the first place. Thank you for joining us for this special series on vulnerable populations during Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Fighting stigma, believing survivors, and helping to eliminate barriers and obstacles vulnerable individuals face to getting access to resources are what we can all do to make this community safer. If you're interested in learning more about advocating for survivors of sexual assault, visit the volunteer section of our website, www.crisiscenterbham.org. If you're a registered nurse with at least one year of experience, and you would like to help survivors of sexual assault with medical services, you can visit our website to get information on that as well. During the current COVID-19 outbreak, the Crisis Center is still accepting SANE and Rape Response clients. So if you're sexually assaulted, and need to report your assault or get medical care advocacy or emotional support you can call us at 205-323-7273 The Crisis Center is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to serve the unmet needs of people experiencing personal crisis or mental health issues and respond with services that promote coping emotional health, and well-being. For a comprehensive list of our services, visit www.crisiscenterbham.org. Special thanks to our staff and volunteers who contributed to the series, to Dale Wisely for contributing music, and to all of the volunteers, board members, community partners, and individual donors who help make hope possible for our community through their support of the Crisis Center's callers, clients, and consumers.